You know, I, I care more for the planet than for humans, to be frank. We're not destroying nature. We're not destroying the planet. We're destroying ourselves. Nature will continue with us and without us. That was the voice of Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, three-time Minister of Environment in Costa Rica and the leader of the Global Environment Facility, the largest environmental fund in the world. My name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma a podcast series by Oso Conservation dedicated to, inspired by, and created in the last wild places on Earth. These stories help us understand the dilemma between humanity and the planet humanity depends on. We'll tap into the knowledge of experts around the world and take you to some of the most pristine and vulnerable wildernesses on Earth. I'm reporting from the Osa Conservation Biological Station, surrounded by Costa Rica's ancient rainforests. Join me as I look for answers from the top conservationists, scientists, and nature nerds around the world. Let me play you the soundtrack of Costa Rica. So, it's no surprise that this year, National Geographic called Costa Rica's Osa Peninsula a biodiverse wonder. Across the country, scarlet macaws dot the rainforest canopy like rubies, Spider monkeys drip from the branches of mega trees. Freshwater streams run through ancient rainforests and out to the coast, where sea turtles come to lay their eggs in the hot sand. The country boasts cloud forest, rainforest, mangrove forest, over 800 miles of pristine coastline, and a string of freshwater lakes, rivers, and more than 200 volcanoes. Tourists from around the world flock to this lush paradise, a renowned environmental oasis. Throughout recent years, Costa Rica has received a lot of attention, not only for its diverse ecosystems, but also for its policy and management. More than half of the country is under forest cover, and more than a quarter of its land is protected in some form. Costa Ricans have been at the forefront of the international fight against climate change. This country is small but mighty, and it's led the way for this green revolution. However, it hasn't always been like that. I grew up in a Costa Rica which is very, of course, very different to the one that you can see today because I grew up knowing and being in pristine places where the following year the forest was not there. So that was kind of the normal. That is Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, who I told you about earlier. The avid surfer and three-time minister of environment in Costa Rica is now the head of the Global Environment Facility. When I was born, probably my grandfather generation, which was almost on their way out, was the generation that turned the landscapes of what Costa Rica has been for 150 years. They, they had this conflict with nature. 
and in nature, even though we appreciate it or they appreciate it, nature was a, a barrier for their personal development, for their family development, and for the development of the country. So they were the generation, my grandfather generation, was the generation that really changed the landscape from, you know, pristine tropical forests, cloud forests, uh, dry forests, wet forests, wetlands, into a productive landscape. And, and they felt very successful in doing that. And, and, and that was the perception of development that they did have. That was kind of the normal condition that we had in Costa Rica in the 60s, very early 70s, where Costa Rica was getting to the limit of the agricultural frontier, where Costa Rica did finally conquer the wilderness areas and conquer all areas and has presence, human presence, through roads and infrastructure, schools uh, and other services everywhere in, in the country. When my grandfather was born in 1906, Costa Rica was most probably the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere poorer than Nicaragua, Honduras, Haiti, whatever other country you may put in down in that list, unfortunately. When he died, Costa Rica was in the top three nations in terms of human development in the Western Hemisphere, you know, right next to Canada, Uruguay, even the U.S. You know, Costa Rican lives, uh, you know, human development standards in Costa Rica are higher than in the U.S., you know. Right. We live longer. We live happier with a smaller footprint, environmental footprint. So I tend to believe that uh, we do better than the Americans. You have a bigger of, in, smile than I do. <laughs> in terms of human development. So in a matter of a generation, they did that. That was fabulous and great. Nevertheless, I tend to believe that that was not sustainable because we depend on our natural resources, which I call it uh, the natural capital. So uh, as I was growing up, and my grandfather generation was retiring, we began seeing huge impact that we cause on our natural capital, on, on nature. We affect the rainfall patterns, longer droughts, erosion of soils, pollution of rivers, uh, a lot of uh, forest fire, so a lot of pollution in the air. And even though the country prospered a lot during those years, my father generation and later my generation began, you know, reacting to what we did. Because not not everything that my grandfather generation did was sustainable in terms of human development, in terms of, you know, prosperity. It, it was not sustainable because we changed, um, you know, forested landscapes into cattle ranches in areas where Cattle and pasture was the activity was not sustainable because these were big slopes, big rainfalls, so there's a lot of erosion. So the yield per hectare decreased dramatically, and all of a sudden you got a lot of poor people which were unable to prosper because, you know, the, the there is no possibility to generate economic activity in an area that is highly degraded. Right. So uh, we began thinking, you know. First, how do we protect and, and then how, how do we restore? And I mean, you did it. You did exactly that. You protected and you restored, right? Looking what we have today, it is beyond my wildest dreams to see what we have today because we didn't only 
create a system of protected areas that represents really well the different ecosystems right. of the country, but also we've been able to restore uh, and see once more forests in areas that were clear inside and outside protected areas. The whole idea, this whole concept of restoring, protecting, and providing jobs really work. This is very successful. So to see what we have today and remember what I thought 25 years ago, uh, it, is, um, it is incredible. And this makes me think that the things that we believe today that are incredible, impossible, can be easily done because we already did this in Costa Rica. So if Costa Rica has done this, we can do it everywhere. We got the know-how. And that is our story today. I'm sitting down with Costa Rica's two most powerful environmental leaders to try and understand that know-how and ask how it can be scaled up to push the entire world towards successes by the end of the 2020s, what climate scientists are referring to as the critical decade. You just met one of our guests today, Carlos Manuel Rodriguez. Now you'll hear from Andrea Mesa, Costa Rica's current Minister of Environment, who's going to break down exactly what happened and what changed to set this country on the path toward environmental success. She's starting with her grandparents' generation as well. At that time, there were some um, negative incentives. For example, if you wanted to get a land title at that time, the, the requirement was that you needed to clear up the property. And that was to destroy the forest, to demonstrate that you were taking care of that property. And, and those perverse incentives were changed. We recognized that you could also um, get a land title and demonstrate that you were taking care of the property also by doing some conservation of that property. We also made some adjustments and, and, and we prohibited the, the land use change. And then we started with the payment of environmental services. But I, I, it's a little bit to understand that you need to have clear policies, vision, and then um, adjust the instruments, the legal instruments and the incentives as well. And you just brought up very complex, but also quite innovative topics that Costa Rica has kind of led the way in, which is this, you prohibited land use change. Can you break down what that means to me? Because as somebody from the United States, a country that people around the world call a global leader, I, I don't even understand what that means. It's such a foreign concept. Oh, yes. And, and for us right now, and, and especially for us who work in conservation issues, it's like a, a very common concept. But, but you are right. If Probably if I ask my daughter Malena what <laughs> to, to prohibit land use change, probably she doesn't understand um, either. But it's basically that it is prohibited to cut the forest. <laughs> and it's basically, so it's, it's so basic, but it is so important because at the end, normally, we're all you're all the time fighting with new uses like agriculture, which is uh, clear the forest, and it's for normally agricultural purposes. And then what we did is that okay, where where we have forests, you cannot turn down this forest. That's illegal. At that time, that was sounded and that seemed radical, and. Um, and a lot of people, they were saying, 
these guys, they really want to make the country poorer because agriculture was the main income for the economic uh, of the country. And it, it was like a big challenge. But then, based on that vision, we started with a new industry, which is basically tourism. And, and we are demonstrating that a living forest and a protected forest can generate more welfare and income to the country. And I think that that's, that's the story and the successful story behind the Costa Rican case. Right. And you said when this, this idea of not being able to cut the forest anymore kind of first came to play, it seemed so radical. But what you're saying now is that there are ways to protect the forest and also continue developing and continue human development. And that is basically when, when people ask me, what's the concept? What's, what are nature-based solutions? And what's the concept? You know, what's the rational behind this, this idea of nature-based solutions? And my answer normally is to really see nature as part of your development model. <laughs> to really understand that, you know, there used to be a, this false dichotomy of saying, you know, conservation and development. And no, what we are demonstrating, and I think that what we really need to understand, and this is like as human beings, is that we need nature for our survival and we need nature and, and it is also for our uh, economy and it is good for the economy. And we can be generating not only jobs and welfare and and health, <laughs> but... Um, now, with all the technology and the science, there's, there is so much information that we know that it is there in the forest and that probably a lot of the solutions uh, for a lot of the human challenges are there in the forest. And probably with all this uh, scientific information, understanding and learning more about the forest and respecting the forest and using technology like this combination, I think it is, it is the future. Costa Rica is renowned for this approach of looking within the forests for the answers. In 1996, the country actually added the rights of humans to have a healthy and well-balanced ecosystem to its constitution. Here's more from my time with Carlos Manuel Rodriguez discussing Costa Rica as a green leader. What do you think makes Costa Rica an environmental leader. The BBC recently published an article calling Costa Rica the environmental leader of the 21st century. Well, uh, we are not as green as everybody thinks. Yes, we have done great things, but uh, this is the minimum uh, that uh, we can we can do. Mm-hmm. But I tend to believe that there's a need inside the human spirit. There's a need to find those champions and leaders so we can really move the needle in the in the right direction and in that context I can understand I can understand that if uh, I'm a politician I, I'm I, I people see me as a politician because I've been in government a few times I've been three times Minister of Environment they don't uh, you know Costa Rican doesn't see me as a as an environmental champion they see me as a politician, and uh, hopefully a good politician. They, they see me as a politician. Uh, and when I talk with people, uh, even though they ro- recognize in the edge of their eye that we have done good things, they're always bringing those pending environmental issues. So there's so much that we need to do. But now, 
What we have in front of us is something very interesting because today we're not talking about, you know, stopping deforestation. Nowadays, the discussion is how do we do the transition from this irrational economic system that keeps on polluting, keeps on translating the, the economic cost of pollution and environmental degradation to the poorest or to the next generation or to the younger people, how do we move from there into an economy that doesn't waste resources, that is more efficient, that doesn't work on a linear base? You extract, you produce, and you waste. How do we go from that into a circular economy where the tax system, the national accounting system, the financial policies are very much aligned with the expectation of the scientific community to manage natural resources as an asset, as a national asset. The same way we manage the human capital, the same way we manage the financial capital of the country. But also, and very importantly, what we have achieved is not because the country generate uh, consensus easily within all sectors. Costa Rica is not that different to what you see today in many other countries, uh, which are highly polarized. And that means that the country is not aligned and clear, as people tend to believe from the outside, that we have general consensus on how do we go from here to what we want to see in 2050. Don't get the wrong impression that Costa Rica is a well-oiled machine, politically speaking or socially speaking. It's very complicated, like many other countries. So as a self-declared politician and a political leader in Costa Rica and around the world, do you are you hopeful? You just talked about all of this polarization. Do you think that people can unite around stopping climate change and confronting oh, this yes, climate of crisis? Course. In a week, I'll be 61. So I tend to believe that I've seen a lot of water going under my feet. And um, there is no white and black. I mean, we are not going to be 100, you know, successful in achieving, you know, all of these goals and targets. There's going to be casualties. But I'm optimistic because of the human spirit. The human spirit has always led us and helped us uh, to deal with many issues. And I hope that uh, we can come out, out of this one. Otherwise, as and uh, that um, otherwise this will be in a very, very top uh, spot in, I don't know, probably in five, uh, five half a million years, uh, we won't have humans, but we will have big rats, hairless rats in a cave, you know, doing fire with a big brain and things will happen once more <laughs> with our dominant species. You know, I, I care more for the planet than for humans, to be frank. And... Um, if human disappears, I'm sure that the planet will carry on without us. The, the, the planet doesn't need humans. We need them. We need the planet. We need nature. We're not destroying nature. We're not destroying the planet. We're destroying ourselves. Nature will continue with us and without us. We've seen how Costa Rica has had so many highs and so many lows. But tell me, what are you most proud of of this country right now? What I'm very proud about this country is uh, the country's consistency in pursuing strong values and principles ar around human well-being, human rights, 
The, Do you know that bird? Yeah. What is Those that? are the red-fronted parrots. It sounds like a parrot. <laughs> yeah, the red-fronted parrots. Our um, consistency in investing in education, that is what makes me really, really proud. What we have done in the environmental conservation field, it is a product of what we've done in this other one, which makes me feel very proud. I will say that um, to have 60% of the country with forest covered and at the same time to triple the, the income uh, of, the, of the population, uh, this is one of the elements that I think it's, it's great. But uh, the other element is to produce or of our electricity with renewable sources. You know, that this is like... At this time, when we are talking about uh, the new economy, you know, in, for 2050, which is that we need to decarbonize our economy, these are two elements uh, that I'm so proud of. It's not so easy that you are, a, you know, a middle-income country at the end and, and a developing country with a lot of challenges, uh, with a lot of pressure <laughs> and a small fiscal space, and it's not so easy to have... Uh, resources and the small amount of resources that we have, we have decided that it was good to invest in those areas and to have forest, stop deforestation and recover forests and have forests. And also now to have electricity that comes almost 99% from renewable sources. And this is, you know, it sounds easy, but again, it was because we decided, we, we made the right political decisions, we created the good policy frameworks and the good incentives, and here we are. And, and yes, a lot of challenges, there's still a lot of things that we need to address, but I'm so proud of these two elements. And Ministra Andrea, to say that you have 99% coming from renewables across the nation blew me away. I saw that statistic when I was researching for this interview, actually, and I didn't believe it when I read it at first. It is normally when, when we're having these conversations with other development countries, when you see, okay, which is your biggest challenge is how to decarbonize your um, the production of electricity in the different countries. And, and yes, here you have a small country that it is demonstrating, again, that it is possible that you can have a, a, a robust economy based on 100% clean electricity. There's like, we still have and we're still consuming uh, fossil fuels, especially for transport. And probably that's like, you know, like, like the big challenge in the future. But once you have this electricity coming from renewable sources, then the next step is to electrify the different uses. And, and that's a little bit one of the next steps in our agenda. So, so let's dive in to the next steps now. Tell me about your goals and kind of the Costa Rican government's goals. Um, and let's just start 10 years out. What are you looking for by 2030? And I will say that we, we even have a plan for not only for 2030, but for 2050. We have 
made this commitment that we want to be carbon neutral in 2050. And this will require uh, a big transformation of in, in many sectors, especially in the transport sector, <laughs> because, uh, of course, we know that we need to get to the 1.5 temperature goal of the Paris Agreement. We are very committed to that. And for this reason, we launch our decarbonization plan, which is our long-term strategy. And there we have defined this goal. Okay, let, we want to be carbon neutral. And this means that we really need to protect our forest <laughs> because it's, it's critical to achieve that goal. So it's again nature part of this model that we have for 2050, it's critical. We also need to electrify the different uses, transport and in industry. And we need to work with uh, waste, with that area that is also an area that we need to address and with agriculture. But not only related to these areas, we also need to start uh, protecting our oceans. And that's, you know, like probably uh, I think that when we see the Costa Rican history, which is very related with the coffee plantations, you know, we, we, we see ourselves more like people from the valleys, you know, the, the, all the economic activities in San Jose, which is the central valley. Mm -hmm. And at the end, most of our you know, of, of, of the different economic activities and everything is all located in the metropolitan area, which is at the end, part within or inside the Central Valley. And a lot of our culture is related to that. And we, we don't, we haven't paid attention to our oceans. And we have uh, coastlines on the Pacific and on the Caribbean side. And there's so much... Again, it's like a treasure that we have not not identified and that we have not been taking care of. So it's like the new the next step. <laughs> I'm so excited that you brought up oceans um, because that's something that Osa Conservation, the nonprofit I work for, has been focusing a lot of our energy into recently. Um, and with this this worldwide commitment to protecting 30% of land and 30% of seas by 2030. You're at 25% of your land protected right 26 now. 26% of our land? 26. Under, under yeah, some of these um, uh, categories. And, and we, yes, the goal is to achieve the 30% in, in 2030, for sure. But in the ocean part, it is less than 3% of the ocean, which is under some of these protected areas uh, or these uh, categories. So... That's the challenge. And that's in Costa Rica. I mean, internationally, I think it's less than 1% of our oceans are protected. Exactly. And, and again, it's like, um, it is the unknown <laughs> area or the unknown place, right? The ocean. And, and what we have and, and the vision that we have is that we want to achieve this 30% of the ocean protected not in 2030, but before we leave this, this government. And that is in 2022, by the latest, to have this 30% of the ocean protected. Because again, like the legacy that we want to generate, and we really think that 
this will generate a lot of welfare to the people who who's living in the coastlines, to the fishermen, and and it's uh, the next step. We're very clear that we need to do this, and we need to do this now. And like you said, it it's been proven time and time again that protecting the oceans actually leads to more fish being caught, larger fish being caught. And a lot of the work OSA Conservation has been doing is working at the community level to kind of share that message because it's kind of jarring to hear that protecting the oceans will actually lead to to more and bigger fish being caught. Exactly. And I think that probably in 20 years, <laughs> we will look back and we will be, you know, sharing this new story of what these protected areas, these marine protected areas generated. And I will say that as we generated this green economy in the land part, in the terrestrial part with the, with the national park system, we will be generating this blue economy based on these marine protected areas. And yes, uh, of course, it's, it's again this conversation with the fishermen and of, they feel that we are crazy, that we are not allowing them to do their economic activity. But I know that with good science, with good information, and of course with other interventions that are required, their income will be uh, will be better, will increase, and more welfare will be generated for these communities. So how would you summarize, I don't know if this is, even, if this is a fair question for you, but in just one sentence, what's the legacy, because you brought up legacy, what's the legacy you want to leave as Minister of Costa Rica's Environment? This... Um, I'm so sorry. It's a hard question. <laughs> It's a hard question for sure. But but I will say there there's two legacies. Once this vision, this 2050 vision of the long-term strategy, the decarbonization plan, you know that this is uh, the model that that we want to have for 2015 to be carbon neutral, and that this and that this vision needs to include nature-based solutions and ocean-based solutions and we want to leave the 30 now not the 30 by 30 but the 30 by 22 <laughs> goal in the case of of the ocean in costa rica and to really move the decarbonization agenda towards that end to be carbon neutral in 2050. This idea of green and blue conservation is central to both of these global leaders. Here's a story from the Osa Peninsula, the place where the rainforest meets the sea, and coincidentally, the place where these interviews were conducted. When I began visiting the area, you know, this was a very remote, inaccessible area, when roads and other means of transportation allow us to come here I began coming here in the early, early 1980s because I'm a surfer and I was looking for waves and there was a high potential for waves. And yes, of course, we found a lot of very nice uh, pond breaks and big waves. But also, and I was coming with my friends, which were, you know, surfers. They were not conservationists. 
So when I began coming here, it was only in the dry season because in the wet season it's impossible because there were no bridges and roads were very, very muddy. So only in the dry season, and the dry season was the forest fire season, the fire season. So it was impress it was very imp impressive to come with my friends and see forest fires everywhere. I remember once I was surfing in this, you know, very nice surf spot. I was in the ocean and I was looking towards the hill in front of uh, the break and, and they were burning the forest there. And I remember I had a very bad time, and even though the waves were very, very good. I had a very, very bad time because, you know, in a matter of uh, four days, a pristine forest in front of uh, our salt break disappeared because it was burned. Wow. So that was what I saw. Um, and, uh, and now it is very interesting. The same plot that was burned uh, in front of our um, uh, salt break, now, 25 years, 30 years after that, has forest once more with the same species that uh, we saw back then. So yes, nature can be restored. If you give a hand to nature, nature can really do very good. And uh, and that really makes me feel very happy because I know my kids that won't, won't go through what I went, which was, you know, looking how mean we were with nature. And uh, yes, I understand. I understand perfectly. These were poor people, government grant them, you know, land rights if you... Um, if you burn the forest and you, you know, bring cows and you do productive activities, that, that was the thinking back then. But I'm happy that we were able to achieve all of our conservation goals. And when I come down here to Osa and see the conservation and restoration, and when I see the daughters and sons of those um, uh, settlers today making a very decent uh, life out of uh, tourism and ecotourism, it makes me even happier. After hearing him speak with so much pride about the children of this new Costa Rica, I asked Andrea Mesa how thinking about future generations impacts her work. And I want to stay on this theme of legacy because we're sitting here with, with your daughter. What, what's the legacy or the message that you have for the young people of the world? What do you think when you, when you look at your two daughters who are growing up in Costa Rica? That I really trust in them because I see all the knowledge that they have and that they, they know that they have the power to change the system. And they are so clear about human rights about the importance of nature, uh, about, you know, how to use technology in the right way. So I think that this combination of, and uh, it's for me is to say that, that I'm happy that they will be the leaders in the future and that I really trust you, trust my daughter, because you will be the ones who will be, you know, making this a better, a better place, a better world. And I'm, I really believe that, that this is what will happen and I know that right now what we are seeing, you know, is like, um, it's like a battle between the two models. And, and of course, every time before changing an, an economic system, before changing an institutional system, of course, we will have battles. But we don't have to lose the faith because we will be in a better place. And, and it's because you will have the power to do that. <laughs> This transformation needs to be 
based on these gender issues as well. I really believe that when we have this gender balance in 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 politics, in the economic world, I think that this will really make this transformational change happen. When I hear Malena and I hear Paz, my other daughter, and and all the power that they have, I that's why I'm so confident and I, I think that they will be changing the world like you. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that things will be better and that uh, it will be based on this new understanding that we really need nature, we need to protect our oceans and that this will be generating welfare to our communities and and health. It's like if we have a healthy ecosystem, we will have a healthy economy and a healthy population and, and we can really understand that everything is interconnected. And I really love One of the first things you said in this interview, and you've circled back to it a lot, is seeing nature as an asset instead of a burden. It is an asset, absolutely. And and yes, and now we have the, the Gustav report. <laughs> you know, everything is like, like when I was reading the report, and of course, it's, you know, it's, it's a great uh, input to this uh, international discussion. But I was like saying, this is so basic, you know, to really understand. And, and it's how I see it. It's how I feel that nature is an asset. And it's like, why are we, you know, like discovering, like making this <laughs> discovering? And, and I'm like, this is like a basic concept. But, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important step that we have uh, now the, the these economics around nature and around climate and to understand that this is the most important asset that we have. It's almost like the very bare minimum you can do is see nature as an asset and we're only getting there now. But like you're saying, the good news is we're getting there. We're getting there. Exactly. <laughs> we are getting there. And Costa Rica is a strong example of what can be achieved in just one generation. Andrea's daughter, Melena, sat in on our conversation. Toward the end of our time together, we pass the microphone to her. So, Malena was not ready to be interviewed today. <laughs> so, again, this is a really unfair interview. Um, how, how old are you? 14. You're 14 years old. So, your mom is not only a leader in Costa Rica, she's a leader internationally. How, how does that make you feel? What do you see when mm -hmm. you look at her? So proud. Like, it's amazing. Um, like, seeing a, wom a woman in a like such an important, um, how do you say, like spot. I don't know, it amazes me. Like, I'm just so proud. I always like tell my friends like, yeah, my mom is the minister. Always bragging about it. And it just like makes me so happy. I want to achieve something like my mom. Like we still have a lot of things to change, but I see a great future. So. How can we work toward that great future that Melena still believes in and that Costa Rica is showing can be achieved? Well, that is what the Nature Dilemma is all about. I want to wrap up the show today by extending a huge thank you to both Andrea Mesa and Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, 
As you just heard, they're two of the most influential environmentalists and politicians in Costa Rica, a country that champions green conservation and is pushing heavily to extend that conservation to the blue oceans. Costa Rica is a nation the rest of the world has looked towards as we begin to set our sights on a sustainable future. Because, like you heard in the beginning, nature doesn't need us. We need nature. Support the show by leaving us a review and sharing this episode with your friends and family. Your feedback, thoughts, questions, and comments are always greatly appreciated. One last time, my name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, powered by OSA Conservation. Thank you so much for listening.